This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. It's another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. It's part two of our Troughton retrospective. We're knee-deep in Troughton. We're enjoying it. We're loving it. We're going to continue on with our look at uh, the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton, and uh, delve into the middle of his era, season five. Welcome to another Doctor Who podcast. It's my great pleasure to have myself, as well as Tom, in the caravan here today. Hello. How are you doing? Hello, Tom. Are you all geared up to keep talking about Mr. Troughton, the second Doctor? I am. In fact, I think I'll do this podcast in the guise of Henry Gordon Jago. Yes. Well, we'll see how long that lasts on the other side of this particular musical interlude as we continue into the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton. Tremendous. Well, where did we leave our dear listeners last week? We left them... On the edge of the precipice, the end of Series 4, the beginning of Series 5, we'd had the introduction of a new companion, Victoria Waterfield, to the TARDIS crew to uh, keep Jamie company after the uh, exodus of Ben and Polly and the Faceless Ones. And this is the season where the Cybermen are being set up as the, I suppose, de facto main villain of the Doctor Who franchise, um, certainly one that was more easily copyrightable and easily paid for than the uh, Terry Nation Daleks were. So what story do we have that starts Season 5? Tomb of the Cybermen. And it's a great story. I think beloved by fans because it was only very recently returned. And I have to be honest, this is the first Doctor Who DVD that I bought um, some six or seven years ago. And although it's very much of its time, it explains one of the reasons why Doctor Who has survived for such a long time, because it is so tremendously imaginative. Oh, yes. Anybody who has only ever watched the new series could look at this and see all of the important touch points. It's clear who the Doctor is, the TARDIS, the Cybermen, the two companions, and of course that wonderful phrase that characterises the Troughton era, base under siege. Also, this story represents the beginning of what is widely regarded as the monster season, because there are so many imaginative creatures that show up. But yeah, Tomb of the Cybermen. It's, I think that's the, the clue is in the title. The Doctor visits Telos, discovers an archaeological dig, and of course the dig is to uh, find and open up the tombs of the Cybermen. What did, mm. what did you think of the Doctor's character in this? The Doctor's character is very interesting, actually, because I, I think one of the major things for me was that it showed a different side to the Second Doctor. There's there's a marvelous scene between the Second Doctor and Victoria, where they're sitting on the edge of the uh, tomb opening, mm. and the Doctor talks about his family. Yeah. Now it's fascinating that we hear in the new series so many. Well, I suppose a couple of references to the Doctor's family that you really realise there's nothing new in New Doctor Who that hasn't already been covered in the classic era, Hmm. that we already knew the Doctor had a family. We already knew the Doctor, by default, had a granddaughter and therefore a son or daughter of some sort, that... You know, the Doctor already has his history there, that the new series isn't telling us anything new. Mm. There's there's a wonderful scene between him and Victoria where, where the Doctor basically says, oh, yes, I, I remember my family, but they sleep in my mind. Yes. So he, he remembers them, but, you know, they don't really form a major part of what makes up his, I suppose, life. Mind you, it could be argued that that's part of what he's running away from, but we should, but we shall see. Maybe that's a conversation for another day. Um, mm, mm. Also, this Doctor seems incredibly mischievous, or mischievous, we should say. 
the head baddie, if you like, the head, the head human baddie, a fellow called Klieg, is trying to open up the tombs, and he's applying symbolic logic to try and work out the sequence of levers to pull. And the doctors looked at it and worked out exactly what the correct sequence is while Klieg is getting it wrong. And interestingly, the doctor gives Klieg the solution and says, well, look, the mistake you've made is this, but you shouldn't apply the logic. Don't do it. Really, don't do it. Knowing, of course, that he will go ahead and do it. Even beyond that, though, as Klieg is trying to open further parts of the tomb, the Doctor's actually going along behind him and correcting the mistakes mm. physically. So there is a question of motivation. I think it's the seventh Doctor, so Sylvester McCoy, that gets shown as this Machiavellian person who's making things happen and pulling all the strings. But it's very clear in the team of the Cybermen that, no, 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 number two was doing that a long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I'll backtrack slightly there, just, just to get back to that point you've made, mm. that... Tomb of the Cybermen is is one of the last major video finds from the classic era. It's it's certainly the last complete story that's ever been found, and it was found in a dusty Hong Kong vault in 1992, complete and all beautifully ready to be released by the uh, BBC Enterprises on VHS. Mm. And the points you make there are are one of the fascinating things that get revealed once you actually see Tomb of the Cybermen as as compared to, certainly in my case, Mm. listening to the audio for 20 years, because that's all I had access to when I was a fan in the you know 70s and 80s Mm. that you see this doctor that like you say is going behind Klieg's back and pressing the right buttons and levers to correct the mistakes that this supposed mathematician genius is making yeah and he's engineering pretty much every single event in Tubum of the Cybermen yeah to come to the outcome that he wants that Mm. where he's trying to direct it to and like you say it's really a wonderful foreshadowing of what the Seventh Doctor pretty much did in every single one of his adventures. Exactly. Change the events to suit himself. Yeah, definitely so. And this is part of the reason why Patrick Troughton and this era of Doctor Who are so important to the continued survival of the show. What you've got is someone, a character who's interesting, a character who's ambiguous, a character who's, mis- who's mischievous, a character who's, te- who's helping a story to be told that really couldn't be told by William Hartnell. And once an audience gets hold of that, then there's no reason for the story to ever finish. I mean, I think, as we may have mentioned in the last episode, had Troughton not been able to carry this off, and of course they had the production team to help him as well, but this is the lead actor, had Troughton not been able to carry this off, we wouldn't be sat here 50 years later talking about this wonderful show. No, that's right, that's right, that's right. Tomb of the Cybermen was one of those stories, I mean, I suppose it's difficult for a modern fan to understand that this was only discovered in 1992. Mm. Now, now for fans before that era, Tomb of the Cybermen was the ultimate missing story. It was the cure for cancer. (laughs) It was the story that was going to reveal all. And I suppose for some people it was a bit of a disappointment when it was actually found because, like Tom said in the last episode, audio has the most fantastic visuals. Mm. Yep, yep, definitely. When when you're listening to it. And and for me, I purchased the Tomb of the Cybermen audio, I think, in the early 80s from a a dusty church hall Doctor Who fan club (laughs) meeting here in Brisbane. And that was all I consumed for, you know, the next, what, 10 years or 15 years until it was found. And I suppose then finally seeing the visuals of Tomb of the Sidemen in in the early 90s, -hmm. it was a bit of a letdown because it wasn't what I had had pictured in my mind over that 
you know, previous nearly two decades. I, you know, I know what you mean. It, it can never match up to the pictures you see in your head, admittedly. But for its time, I thought it was particularly good. The only time I had a slight issue was during the episodes three and four, where there was the fight between the giant man-mountain Toberman and some of the Cybermen, where you could clearly see the Kirby wires being used to lift the people. But even, <laughs> <laughs> but even inside that, it was incredibly sinister. Some very light, some nice light comedic touches from, uh, again, from Troughton and Hines. Uh, particularly when the Doctor has asked Jamie whether or not he's managed to securely tie the cyber leader, where, where the answer is clearly no, he hasn't. But it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it's a it's it's a very very good four episodes. Warmly recommended to anyone with an interest in Doctor Who. Oh, definitely. <laughs> We press on into the abominable snowmen. Now, as I mentioned before, this is the monster era. So, in the abominable snowmen, we have the uh, the appearance of an unusually popular Doctor Who enemy, the Yeti. And you know, alongside the Zygons, these are the creatures I'd most like to see showing up again in uh, in the modern era because they are so str- they are so strangely imaginative, imaginative and new. They're wonderful things. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's it's just so fascinating that when we fast forward to the twentieth uh, anniversary story, the Five Doctors, hmm. when they had to find a monster to pit against Patrick Troughton and the Brigadier. What did they choose? The Yeti. The Yeti. I mean, I mean, they didn't choose the Cybermen. They didn't choose the Daleks. I mean, I mean, they didn't choose the Macra. They chose the Yeti. I mean, it's 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 fascinating for an enemy that really, when you look at it, is is such a minor part of Doctor Who history. <laughs> That it's just so fascinatingly popular. It's just incredible. Perhaps what was being tapped into there was the public perception of the abominable snowman. Um, because mm. I'll, you know, the, even, I remember even as a child, you know, when I was like seven, eight, nine, ten years old, being told stories about the Yeti or the abominable snowman. So to think back 30, 40 years into the 60s, well, great, you know, if there's already a monster there and the, peop- and the public has a feeling for it, brilliant, let's tap into that. Essentially, we have, I won't say a base under siege story here, we have uh, a monastery under siege story. Um, <laughs> it's it's a base for monks, there uh, you go. I, I like that, I like that very much. Um, and we have um, a superbly performed disembodied voice of the abbot, Padma Sambhavar. Oh, mm, that, is so, that is the first time I've actually heard that pronounced. That is, can, can you say that again? Yeah, Padma Sambhavar. Oh, that's beautiful. That's the first time I've actually heard that in the audio realm, I've, I've only ever read it before. I've never actually heard it pronounced properly. Oh, that okay. is beautiful. <laughs> S- say it again. Say it again. <laughs> okay. uh, Padma Sambhavar, or as uh, as the actor would say, Padma Sambhavar. Well, that's right. I mean, I mean, my 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 awe is just there because uh, again, the the abominable snowman. Hmm. Only has one episode existing, episode two, mm, mm. and it's a six-episode story. So I mean, it's 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 a, and unfortunately, you know, for this enemy that's supposed to be such a hallmark and landmark of the Troughton era, mm. that so few episodes of it actually exist. In fact, I think even the episode that exists doesn't have Yeti in it from memory. Um, they're there. It's it's kind of fleeting because I think it's the part where the uh, Yeti are is captured because we certainly don't have the episode that exists that. I think in every publicity shot where they say the Yeti 
trundling down that vast snowy hillside. Yeah, I think that's in one of the missing episodes. Yeah, it's about, yeah. There's, there's there's not a huge amount of snow in the in the uh, <laughs> in the footage. It must be said, <laughs> given that they're in Wales doing it. Oh, they and there we are again. You know, so ooh, Doctor Who being filmed in Wales. Stop me if you heard it. Um, but <laughs> d- d- don't get me wrong. We're not here to do a huge number of plugs. Although I will say, listen, if you get a chance. Do search out the Lost in Time box set. It's fab. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the abominable snowman. Um, and it's interesting for the Abbot because you've got this character who's being held between life and death by an alien menace who's trying to use um, the monastery as a gateway through to our world and our universe. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, again, not a story that Doctor Who's... It's not a story that's uh, particularly new to Doctor Who. But as ever, it's the telling of the story and the and the characters that push the plot along. I think, and, and again, mm. for the sake of the history of it, if you want to, if you want to hear Deborah Watling doing her thing and being uh, and demonstrating why she was christened leather lungs, get in. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next story of the Ice Warriors is, is is a fascinating story because. I suppose depending on the age of the fan that's listening to this podcast, we'll, we'll have certainly different memories of the Ice Warriors. Mm. If if you're an older fan, you you may remember the original broadcast. If you're that old, and and welcome to you, and I hope you have your pension card handy. But <laughs> if if you're of a certain age, perhaps like me, you'll always know the Ice Warriors as having uh, two episodes missing. Mm. Now, um, I think back in the late '90s, it was released as a VHS release which had the existing episodes plus the two episodes narrated on an audio CD. I think Fraser Hines did them, I think, from memory. Okay. So you, you can certainly enjoy them and, and try and experience the full story. And it was rumoured at some point that um, after the work they did on the uh, Patrick Hatton story, The Invasion, mm. with animating the two missing episodes, that The Ice Warriors was going to be the next on the uh, list to do that. But that never happened, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, the the Ice Warriors again is a base under siege <laughs> story, <laughs> which which is most beloved by this era of Doctor Who, <laughs> and sees another monster being introduced into the Doctor Who melting pot to see how it goes and whether it can be used as a recurring villain. Yeah. The Ice Warriors, the Martians, yes. <laughs> Although they, they they don't actually call themselves the Ice Warriors, do they? It's merely something that the uh, humans call them. Exactly so. Um, as I just mentioned, the idea of the Ice Warriors is that, is that they were the native inhabitants of Mars originally. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's this is an interesting story. I mean, I've only I've only really watched, sorry, not watched it. I've only listened to this uh, a couple of times, and it's it's for what it is it's good. There's a strong performance from Patrick Troughton. The Jamie and Victoria dynamic is it's there. It's probably not. Not, what I feel about what I feel about this is that Jamie, I think, like quite likes Victoria because she's very, very ladylike, quite vulnerable. And in this story, there is the, the there's the idea that Victoria is trying to be a bit spunky, trying to be braver than she really is, which is quite touching. But ultimately, watching the dynamic between the Doctor, Jamie, and Victoria isn't for me. Isn't terribly satisfying. You've got these eight foot tall ice warriors which can crush a man's skull. Great, you know, great monsters. Brilliant realization with the vo- with the voices and the movement. Um, particularly given that Bernard Breslau was playing one of the ice warriors. Mm. But yeah, not not my favourite piece of trout in this. It is a bit of a runaround, if I'm honest. Yeah, no, it's it's um, difficult for me too because it, it's not a story I'm overtly familiar with, mm. even though most of it still exists. But it's not a story that I go well. If I want to watch a Troughton story, it's the one I'll watch. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the Ice Warriors really isn't that high on the list. Oh. 
you've you've talked me into it though, Tom. I should really give it a revisit. Press on past um, the Ice Warriors uh, and get into. Actually, I know this story gets a mixed response, but this is one of my favourites. Actually, the Enemy of the World. Um, now, this story is interesting and stands out because it's it's one of the times, um, as we discovered in the quiz some weeks ago, that uh, there is a doppelganger of the Doctor. So there's a character called Salamander who is played by Patrick Troughton with a very interesting accent. Um, yeah, but, uh, the, the, the basic story being that um, Salamander, without putting too fine a point on it, is able, is able to control the world's weather systems and is doing so for his own advantage. A great performance from Patrick Troughton, a very tiring performance as well, because as I say, he had to play two characters. There's also, Trev, you might have to help me out with this one, there's a, there's a great cameo from an Australian actor in, I believe, episode three as the cook. Do you know? Do, do you know the chap I mean? Oh, I think I do, because because he died a year or two ago, didn't he? Very, oh. Only very recently. But it's. It, but I should say the, the, the story is hyper modern. There's helicopters. There's funky girls in uh, in, in leatherette cat suits. But as I say, there's a lovely quick cameo from uh, Reg Lai is his name. He seems to stride the ground between Sid James and David Tennant. It's just a really strong performance. He's only on screen for about what ten minutes. But wow, what a scene stealer. And against Patrick Troughton in two roles, that's saying something. Also, we have Fraser Hines as Jamie being very much the, uh, very much a man of action in this story. He gets to be, uh, gets to masquerade as a security guard for, for quite a while. And uh, how can I put it? The uniform looks good on him. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's good about this story too that it breaks the rule of the existing orphaned episodes of... Uh, the Patrick Troughton era are the worst ones because I, I really think Enemy of the World Part Two, which is the the episode that exists, yeah. is a fine example of seeing this uh, alternate performance that Patrick Troughton has to deliver. Yeah. This Mexican salamander that controls the uh, Earth's weather system, mm. uh, because we do see some quite fine examples of that. Mm. In episode two, unfortunately, we also spend a lot of time of episode two in a caravan with a really bad map on the wall. <laughs> so it's difficult to get a good grasp on this story just from the episode two alone. Even the novelization by Ian Martyr is is one that suffers because it's very difficult to understand because apparently he submitted a draft of this novelization that was very very long and it had to be trimmed back by the target people to their requisite pamphlet length. Okay, and it. And apparently, it's very hard to understand. Well, so the element, what the, the plot of Enemy of the World, or the, or the Ian Martin novel. From what I understand, that to get it back to the 120-page length that the Target novelization people apparently wanted in those days, mm. that it becomes a very choppy and incomprehensible novel. Fair enough, because I, I think paying attention to the audio. You do have to hang on a little bit, purely because you've got Patrick Troughton playing two roles. And I can imagine if there's any, if there's anything missing, because there are, because there are a number of sub, uh, subplots going on as well, that you would get lost. So I can, I, I can see that. Plus, Ian Martin, Ian Marta has a habit of really. He's very good at his exposition. Brilliant exposition. He really sets the scene very well. He is, yes, and and, and certainly some of his later novels. Um he liked to, I suppose, graphically enhance his novels too. Yeah. There, there are certain Ian Martin novels you read and you go, well, Doctor Who was never this um, detailed. bloodthirsty. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and detailed at, anatomically, I don't think. But, uh, yeah, 
Ian Martin was certainly a unique uh, author for the uh, Doctor Who novelisation series. But um, absolutely. Oh, one, one thing while, while we're at this, um, chaps, chapettes, ladies, gentlemen, as we as we're continuing our little journey through uh, Patrick Troughton, one of the things I'd really, really be interested to see would be if anyone is of, is, is a fan of the new series, maybe just to take us up on our offer of uh, maybe looking at some of the classic series, some of this Patrick Troughton stuff, where as I say, you've got the first new Doctor ever and maybe having a listen to it having a look at it and coming back just and letting us know what you think about it from the point of view of someone who's come to Doctor Who through the new series as I say Patrick Troughton is I won't say it's an acquired taste because I, I, I really quite love it but if anyone as I say if anyone from the, who wants to, who's only really experienced the new series would like to get in touch and just do us a, a couple of lines of review of some of these old episodes from the perspective of a new series viewer or a new series fan I'd be really really interested to, to hear and see what you, what, what you thought about this old black and white Doctor Who is that a fair same thing? here same here yeah, yeah absolutely feedback at the Doctor Who podcast.com that works that works is the place to send your uh, submissions so please please we, we would love to hear from you about that <laughs> Moving swiftly along mm-hmm. to the next story, The Web of Fear. Mm. Now, it suffers slightly that it only has one episode existing, episode one, mm-hmm. but it does give us some wonderful visuals of, I suppose, what you call by now the recurring villain, the Yeti, yep. and the great intelligence in this story. So you can really see the production team of Doctor Who almost scrabbling frantically for some new villains and some new monsters that can hmm. continue on into later Doctor Who. So so frantic are the team to look for a major recurring villain that we don't see the Daleks again in the Doctor series until Day of the Daleks in 1972. Mm. So, again, we're seeing in Season 5 them reusing villains like the Great Intelligence Mm. and the Yeti Mm. to to try and find something, you know, in their frantic bid to uh, look for something new in Doctor Who to sort of move forward with. True. I mean, again, though, we have uh, the use of a very familiar surrounding. For, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this story, Web of Fear is set largely around the London Underground. Now, the London Underground had been, had been in operation for a long time by, by that point. But again, by putting monsters from Doctor Who into what was really quite a modernistic surrounding I, and a very familiar surrounding, that kind of t- just ratcheted up the fear factor as well. Um, also, quite famously, the, the production team was refused permission to film in the London Underground. So the director, Douglas Campbell, had to speak to his designer and basically build the London Underground and through use of inventive camera angles create the illusion of space and darkness and, and claustrophobia and they did it so, so so incredibly well the London Underground got in contact with the BBC and said we told you not to film down there what on earth are you doing showing this stuff on TV uh, and, the, and the production crew <laughs> had to demonstrate that no we just did it with basically smoke and mirrors which, is, which I think is a, uh, a great tribute to the skill of the production team from that, from that time. Also, though, there's a, trem- a very, very important first in this story. Trev, would you like to reveal it? Well, it would be my pleasure to reveal it, Tom. Thank you very much for offering it to me. <laughs> we have the introduction of Unit, which, of course, became such a staple of the series um, from, from season seven onwards. We have Ooh. the introduction of the Brigadier. Yes. You know, the, you, know, you know, the whole concept of this international covert military force that could help the Doctor in his adventures. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, the first appearance of Colonel Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart at that time um, and the and the uh, introduction of Unit. Now, away from the story, which, again, 
if you can get a hold of it on audio, please do. Um, away from the story, um, Deborah Watling, who was playing Victoria, had made the decision to leave the show. Her contract was up after 12 months and it was time for her to leave. Also, Patrick Troughton was thinking of leaving, as was uh, Fraser Hines. The reasons that are most often cited for this is that the production schedule for a show like Doctor Who at that time was punishing. And even though Patrick Troughton didn't do so much publicity because he quite liked preserving a certain amount of magic, about the TV show, even though it was just a children's TV show, preserving the magic of it, it was telling quite heavily on him. And as, and, uh, as Deborah Watling says in her, in her autobiography, he was at that time having palpitations and not sleeping properly. Um, so although he made the decision to stay on for another year, it was literally at this time that the, the Troughton rule, as it's become known, uh, i.e. stay for three years, do three seasons, and then bow out gracefully, was first exercised. So again, even in the leaving of the part, Patrick Troughton is breaking new ground. <laughs> Uh, we move on to the story The Fury from the Deep, which once again has a, has a brand new first in it. This time I'm going to have this one because it's the introduction <laughs> of the Sonic Screwdriver, which, as all regular listeners will know, I love to death. Well, that's right. Well, I think during the Troughton era it, it was used a bit more sparingly. Yeah. Although we will see in stories like the Nominators where it is used in some quite fascinating uh, ways. Mm. Yeah, Fury from the Deep, unfortunately, six episodes all missing, so the only way you can really experience this story is via reconstructions or uh, telesnaps or audios or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's an unusual story, because this, this is one of the very few where nobody dies, isn't it? I think pretty much, actually, because the monster in Fury from the Deep doesn't actually kill them. Mm. It, like, puts them in, the, in a sort of stasis area, which the uh, Doctor reverses at the end, mm. once they've defeated the monster due to uh, Victoria's screaming. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's it's like um, the the Eccleston era Doctor dances. Mm. No one dies. No one has to die. Isn't it glorious? It's good. I mean, there are some there are some great electronic effects in there as well. Um, I think even Deborah Watling herself says that, that the uh, the monster in this story is one of her favourites because all you've got is this electronic heartbeat thumping away every time. And when it's and when the monster comes comes close to someone, then the heartbeat becomes a little bit more pronounced. Listening to this on audio, it's actually quite, there's a lot of very eerie performances as well because you know those the people who've been affected by the monster the monsters are still physically there, but just so incredibly far away. They're definitely physically mm. there, but, but you know, in their minds they've left. And speaking of leaving, this is Victoria's final story. Now, some might say that's not such a bad thing, but this does throw up a couple of, throw a couple of continuity curveballs uh, in, into Doctor Who, because the suggestion after this story is that the Doctor returns to Victoria, they travel for a little longer as well, which gives rise to the theories of Season 6B, which we'll talk about at the end of next episode. But Victoria delivers the first critique of the Doctor that I think the show is really lo- allows us to see or hear. I, I don't want to travel. I don't want to go to places where there are monsters. I don't, want there to, I don't want there to be danger anymore. I just want to stay somewhere nice, warm and safe. There is the moment where the Doctor is looking at and thinking, oh, is this what I'm doing? Do I, should, should I maybe mend my ways? But then into the TARDIS he goes with Jamie and off they go to new adventures. One of the most fascinating things about Fury from the Deep for me is um, there are a few very short existing scenes in this uh, story that come courtesy of my side of the world um, mm. due to the Australian censors. Now, you know, for those that don't know, when Doctor Who was sold overseas to various countries, the censors in that country might look at the show and go, oh, no, we can't show that bit. We can't show this bit. That's too violent. So they will cut that scene out. Now, in the case of when it was shown to Australia, 
there were certain bits involving characters in Fury from the Deep called Mr. Quill and Mr. Oak, played with delicious, I suppose, overacting by Bill Burridge <laughs> and John Gill. And the Australian censors, God bless them, decided that um, some of their more dramatic scenes, which involved quite a lot of uh, very open mouths and violence, were too violent for Australian audiences to see, so they cut those scenes. Disturbing. Now, yeah. when Damien Shanahan went through the archives, I believe in the late 90s, early uh, noughties, <laughs> and was, was looking for these cut scenes, those particular scenes came to light, the ones that were cut by Australian censors. So... If you check out, I believe they're on the Lost in Time box set. So thank goodness for Damien Shanahan and his archival perseverance because there are many of these small scenes that exist on the Lost in Time box set mm. that are thanks to puritanical Australian censors that thought we couldn't handle some of these particular violent scenes. Mm. Now, I only mention that in, in my quite long-winded exposition there, that um, <laughs> at the time they believed that Mr Quill and Mr Oak could be expanded out into their own spin-off series. Oh, wow. It was interesting, some of the directions the Doctor Who production team was thinking at the time, that uh, Terry Nation wanted to get his Daleks out into his own series, so the BBC production team went, well, let's get Mr Cool and Mr Oak into their own series. Very similar to what they tried to do during the uh, Hartnell era by uh, getting the Mechanoids into their own series. Yeah, Mechanoids, interesting choice of monster right there. <laughs> <laughs> Can't fit through doorways, yes, Perfect mm. for a TV series. Well, I can't climb stairs. That's never stopped anyone. <laughs> but there, but there, but there we go. <laughs> That's right. Perhaps what we should do is get a picture of Mr. Quill and Mr. Oak and put it on the forum because the it, it is one of those iconic Doctor Who images. These two uh, older men approaching, mouths open, ready to gas you to death. I had a couple. Oh of, yes. I've been out with a couple of people like that, but there you go. Anyway, moving <laughs> on. <laughs> We press on with The Wheel in Space, which closes season five, but also introduces Zoe Herriot, who is to go on to become Patrick Troughton's final new companion. Um, Trev, what do, you, what do you reckon to The Wheel in Space? I suppose it's most memorable for Zoe Herriot, because she does become, I suppose, the second most popular Patrick Troughton companion, because mm, mm, she's... Mm spends the rest of Patrick Troughton's era with him. Yeah. The the Wheel in Space is interesting because, again, it's one of those stories that has very few episodes existing. Mm. Only three and six exist, unfortunately. Mm. So while we do get episode six, which has Zoe joining the uh, TARDIS crew, we have episode three, which, again, isn't one of those most shining examples of the story. No. It's, it's unfortunate, again, because it's one of those base under siege <laughs> stories that the Trout Nero just loves so much. I told you you'd be hearing that particular three words a lot. Mm. Wheel in Space, it's a hard story really going to handle on because there are so few episodes existing. Mm. And even the audios, when I've listened to them, it's difficult not to compare it with earlier base under siege <laughs> stories, like the moon base, yeah, yeah. because I, I think they share certain very similar plot elements. Well, that would be... Yeah, you're right. There's this, um, The Cybermen are ultimately vanquished by a big gun. 
which is on a base <laughs> which is manned by an international crew. Yeah, it's it is the same story, but in fairness, it's a good one. I mean, the wheel in space is is the excuse for some great little lines as well. If anyone was in was in any doubt about how different this Doctor was from the old one, then it's all right here. That this Doctor is a more discursive Doctor. He wants to talk to Jamie and his companions and compare ideas. He wants to, and his companions are, are, are a lot more protective of, of him as well. You know, there's a, a, a very kind of touching um, filial loyalty there between Jamie and the Doctor. Also, there's that lovely line about when Zoe is explaining that there is no way that the ship could have drifted that far on its own. It, it's not because it's just not logical. There's a lovely Patrick Trout moment where he says, "Well, logic, my dear Zoe, just allows one to be wrong with authority," um, which is <laughs> which which is just. It's just everything about his character. It's gentle, it's whimsical, it's generous. And Patrick Trout was known uh, on the production team by now as being a very generous lead actor. I suppose in a way he had to be because he had to carry the whole production. In the same way as in the team of the Cybermen, it's a very gentle and quiet and simple character moment. That, that, That simple line as well is everything you need to know about about the second Doctor. He's quiet, but he's burning with intelligence. A wonderful performance. Now, this story brings to the end... Season five, which as I and as I say, Troughton had been thinking at this point of leaving the show altogether, but had been convinced to stay for just one more year. So when we get into season six, which features, for my money, some of the most inventive Doctor Who to date, uh, I'm thinking of stories like The Mind Robber, and then suddenly, certainly in Doctor Who lore, one of the most important stories of all, The War Games. Then we start to see quite what character Patrick Troughton has built over the previous three years. One of the things about consuming the second Doctor's time on audio is that it zips along really, really quickly um, with a speed that's akin to the return of the new series, to be honest. Um, it's There's a feeling of tenant-like pace in places and it's not until we get into it's not until we get to the end of season six the war games that we that we finally take are able to stop take a breath and look and see exactly how far we've traveled but that's a story for another day or i should say another podcast so we'll finish this episode where we're going to start in episode three of the trout and retrospective by looking at the season six opener the Dominators. And for that, I think we can involve some help. Uh, James, Luke, do you have anything to say about this? I have the very great honour of being joined once again by Luke from the Minute Doctor Who podcast. Good evening, Luke. Good evening, James. And this time we're going to be recording, well, our thoughts about the classic Patrick Troughton story, The Dominators. I'm looking forward to this one. Right, let's get on and talk about what, well, some people consider to be the most interesting part about this particular story. And that's the statistics, uh, the dates on which it was broadcast. This story was transmitted from the 10th of August to the 7th of September 1968. So many, many years ago. I, I, th- I think there are quite a number of different aspects of this story that you can take out of it and enjoy despite the fact that the plot is fairly light shall we say I mean there is essentially five episodes of lots of running around and you know the the premise is set up nicely in episode one you can argue and and resolved quite interestingly and certainly innovatively in in the final episodes and what I personally took from the the middle episodes is, is just watching the second doctor interact with a you know fairly large guest cast mm, and yeah. you know this is Patrick Tratton on top of his game to me uh, just, despite the fact he hasn't got a great deal to get his teeth into and I, I I think like you Luke the thing that I enjoyed 
probably the most were the two dominators, uh, despite their rather interesting choice of uh, of costume. <laughs> and um, the costume certainly is is uh, a premise to the entire story. Really, yes. I mean, you could look at any of the guest cast costumes and think, well, what precisely were they thinking? Okay, Luke, let's get your preliminary thoughts on the dominators. Well, uh, like uh, like many Doctor Who stories, this one uh, was one that I read before I saw it, and getting it on DVD was the, only the second time I, I have actually seen it. Uh, and as a story, there's a lot uh, lot going for it. Um, it's an interesting core premise of the uh, the entirely pacifist society who don't know what to do when confronted by an aggressor. Problem with it dramatically is that they're just a bit wet, and you just don't really care about any of them apart from maybe Arthur Cox's character. Um, who actually has a bit of spunk. Uh, the dominators who turn up uh, in the role of that aggressor um, are like a, an old married couple, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's there's um, some great stuff from, from the dominators, um, bickering, blowing stuff up. I think, as it's a Troughton story, it, it is a little extra special. Um, we do have most of his stuff missing from the archive, and so any chance that we get to, to see him uh, is is more special. Uh, even if the story is a little bit below par. And there's some great stuff from him. There's him acting dumb to uh, avoid being seen as a threat by the Dominators. There's his ongoing relationship between uh, with him and uh, and Jamie. Uh, and obviously Zoe's fresh to the, the whole thing. It's a reasonable story that's a little let down by some of the production values um, and obviously a production team that um, really didn't like the story that they were making. Um, and some writers who who had their story hacked around so much that they didn't want to put their name to it. I'd like to talk about the uh, the era in which this is set, and of course, you know, the late nineteen sixties. This is a reflection of the kind of mood of British society, I think, and that was ban the bomb. It was the summer of love, etc. So I think this particular story was a deliberate attempt to try and kind of show you know, a, a slight snapshot in a rather interesting way of of what contemporary society was like. And uh, I think there was the older generation uh, in the 1960s, of course, coming out of the Second World War, still very fresh from the memory, really, and found it very difficult to accept pacifism as, as a way of life. And the younger generation rejecting the warlike tendencies and history of the, of the immediate past and mm-hmm. what the dominators tends to do is invert that a little bit yeah but you have an elder generation who who reject violence and i think that's a very interesting premise and it's one that works quite well in the story the dominators themselves i think are probably the the, the most fun part of the story mm-hmm. um, they work particularly well in a lot of the location um scenes i mean it's mentioned in one of the dvd Extras that the budget for location shooting was quite generous yeah. um, at this particular point. And you can tell, um, I mean, there are two quarries or two locations <laughs> that they use to film in. And they must have spent, I would say, if you put it all together, probably the best part of an episode on location here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of running around, blowing stuff up, and uh, and it, it definitely shows. Um, mm. But, I mean, as, as always with, it, with, with, with Doctor Who and filming and video, it's very obvious when they run from the uh, location onto the onto the TV set, uh, which <laughs> is a little bit of a shame. But um, the fact that we do get all that um, filming gives it a, a grander scale, I think, to the to the story, which would otherwise have been more studio bound. No, absolutely. I, I think it jars just a little bit when you do switch from you know filming to videotape. Perhaps you know it doesn't really take me out of the story. Certainly yeah. not anywhere near as much the guest cast wearing curtains. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the costume designer on this one, I mean, 
what what were they thinking? I really don't know. <laughs> uh, I talk about power dressing for the dominators. It was the most obvious kind of masculine in-your-face costume, um, and of course that complemented their demeanour extremely nicely. Uh, you know, because they were absolutely malevolent, violent, evil individuals. So it's often said that there's no redeeming features about Daleks. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't see any redeeming features about the Dominators either. No, no. Um, they were a genuine threat, and towards the end, I was looking forward to seeing their demise, which is always, I think, a, you know, a, a telltale sign of a successful villain. Yeah, and, and it's uh, hoist, on, hoist with their own petard as well, as the, the Doctor blows them up with their own atomic device. Well, absolutely. <laughs> now that, ruthless, that's, really. Certainly the scene in the last episode where they decide to suddenly build a, uh, well, essentially an underground tunnel, yeah. uh, similar to the Northern Line, perhaps, inside of about half an hour. Yeah. On the absolute perfect trajectory, in order to catch this bomb as it goes down the hole, was just absolutely yeah. sheer genius. But uh, it, 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 it is a little preposterous, um, <laughs> just a I have to say. And, and it, there's, there's, there's a few stories like that where you, you, you've watched the story before and and you, and you obviously you're, you're watching it maybe for the second or third time and you know where the plot's going and it gets to the final part and you're like hang on there's so much that hasn't happened yet <laughs> and it's the same with the dominators you're like well, i know how this problem is solved but they haven't even started yet and we've only got 25 minutes to go and it somehow cracks along at a, a fair pace and you've got the doctor running out with his little easter egg bomb having caught it um and it, and it does lead to that exciting climax and we, we actually leave this story on a cliffhanger as well, um, yeah, which is kind of getting absolutely. more rare these days. Yeah, it, it, certainly. I, I, I think uh, what you, there's a lot of truth to what you say, and, and, and the pacing for this particular story is all over the place. Indeed, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, 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 again, I, I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's something about the 60s, or perhaps it's the fact that it's a Patrick Troughton story. It really doesn't bother me. Um, if, if they've got a pacing that's um, you know completely off-kilter, then I, I'm, I'm much more concerned if that's in a modern day story written yeah. by you know today's writers, if you like. I mean, there are some times when they get it astronomically wrong, and the Web Planet is, I think, is, is is the best example of that. Where I really, really struggle even to get through the first two episodes. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't struggle at all with the Dominators, and I haven't struggled at all with a lot of the recent DVD releases that are generally considered by fandom as rather poor. Um, mm. I've thoroughly enjoyed Silver Nemesis, I enjoyed The Time Monster, I enjoyed The Twin Dilemma, and this is another one to add to my list. Um, I'm, I'm really enjoying my Doctor Who on DVD at the moment. Going back right to the very beginning of this story, when the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe arrive, they open the front door of the TARDIS, which is looking incredibly battered, incidentally, at this stage. Indeed, it, really, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It really looks like a... You know, it's been in the wars. But, of course, you've got a deck chair and a beach ball, which kind of <laughs> reminded me a little bit of the Leisure Hive opening. Although there's a, um, there's a season break between the Wheel in Space and the Dominators, they made this immediately after after that. And so this is Zoe's first full story as a, as a companion. She's expecting Daleks. Uh-huh. And Patrick right, Troughton and, and, and Jamie are coming in going, we want a, we want a holiday. Um, and obviously Zoe gets her way because this is a Doctor Who story. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we've got a special guest appearance by a certain Mr. Brian Kent as well. Um, episode three, I think he comes into it. And, 
well, it's fairly short-lived. He dies in episode four. Yeah. He's, he's, um, am I right in saying that he is, he was a children's presenter? Of, I, think, uh, I think he was on Play School, wasn't he? I mean, it, again, a bit, bit before my time. But We see the Sonic Screwdriver um, later on in episode five as well. Relatively interesting, given um, our, you know, our colleague Tom's view on the fact that it's a magic wand. It certainly yeah. was multifunctional in his story, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably, it's only, only its second appearance, seeing as it first appeared two stories before in um, Fury from the Deep, mm, so this indeed. this again this was quite new for the the viewers. And uh, whereas before it was a screwdriver, this is the first time we get to see it doing something else and melting a hole in a wall, um, mm. which uh, we don't see it often do that. But uh, again, I think that's part of the the plot thing. It's like we can't believe that they're going to be able to dig a tunnel in the space of an episode. So let's have the Doctor kick it off by. <laughs> Uh, by magic, effectively. <laughs> well, ab- absolutely, and I think to be fair, that's pretty much what the screwdriver is used for today as well. Mm. Um, some could argue far too much. Um, there are also quite a few comic moments I felt throughout this uh, this story. Um, episode three, in particular, where the Doctor and Jamie are in the um, shuttle, which is essentially yes. a cardboard tube, isn't it? <laughs> um, which was uh, which could have been made by someone on Blue Peter, perhaps. But very probably, there was a yeah. particularly good shot I felt of uh, of Fraser Hines kind of framed by Patrick Troughton's legs in the foreground, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I couldn't help but having a chuckle at that. And and again, mentioning Time and the Rani, I mean Sylvester McCoy gets. Uh, chastised for all, all his pratfalls in the Rani's uh, workshop, and yet we've got Troughton doing similar uh, antics. Maybe it's just the, the plot reason for it, and Dominator is, is stronger than uh, Sylvester's uh, uh, in, in Time of the Rani. I don't know, but uh, you do get that clownish element from uh, from both of them uh, actually Let, let's um let's have a very very quick discussion about the extras on here indeed yeah on this yeah. particular disc and, well they're um, quite sparse really aren't they well they are there's not many um recharge and equalize which is the standard making of essentially and yep. as, as you referred to earlier luke chronicles the quiet well turbulent <laughs> making of this story yep um and it looks to be honest with you if um derek sherwin and one of the writers have still got a bit of a issue <laughs> you know, yeah 40 to yeah. 50 years later yeah um they're still arguing a toss there um about what happened with this story and what went wrong yeah and I, but i think that that's one of the more exciting elements really i mean you 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 get the the back slapping and the sycophancy on the the, the modern DVDs, and we, it's like we got we're gonna have to wait I don't know fifteen twenty years to find out what really went on on the new series, and obviously the fact that we've got all this time, and particularly because I mean for some example like Morris Barry, the director's dead, so obviously Derek Sherwin feels free to slag him off a little bit more than he would do if he was uh, still alive, and uh, we actually get to the the kind of the feel of what people actually thought, what was really going on behind the scenes, um, and it just makes for a much more interesting documentary, I think. Yeah. Tomorrow's Times, which is the other really substantial special or extra feature on this disc, and we have Caroline John for some reason. Um, can't quite figure out why it's appropriate to this release, um, but she is presenting a news programme pretty much summarising reports in newspapers uh, of the time of the Dominators. So it's a kind of mixture between points of view and the 10 o'clock news. So this, obviously, this is going to be the first of a, of a series. This was obviously the one for the second Doctor, and they're going to do one for each of the uh, subsequent Doctors. Um, I have to say that I found this a little boring and mm. uh, difficult, because, it I mean, it's, it's like... Fans, fans on the whole are going to be the people watching these DVDs, and we don't really want to hear 
commentary from 40 years ago slagging off our favourite show, um, which is essentially what, well, for the most part what it is. I mean, there's some comments from people, Most, mostly it's journalists going, oh, this is pure owl nonsense or, uh, mm. and all this kind of rubbish. And I, it's like, okay, fair enough, that's what people said, but I don't really want to watch a 15-minute documentary telling me stuff that uh, I don't really want to hear, <laughs> to be honest. The last thing I think we should end on is the Easter egg in this yep. particular um, disc. And Luke, I'll, I'll leave it to you to talk about this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we, won't, we won't tell you where to find it. Uh, it's uh, just the usual searching the method. But it's on the disc somewhere. It, this is the uh, the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre. Um, and if you're anything like me or Stephen Chapansky from Radio Free Scarrow uh, and, and you really love your production codes... Um, then this is the sketch for you. I have to say that I saw the punchline coming a mile off, um, but it didn't um, deaden the uh, the humour. Uh, I mean, if you're aware of the Scottish Falsetto Hot Puppet Theatre, you know roughly the kind of style anyway. But this is definitely worth uh, tracking down, I think, uh, just for this this sketch, to be honest. Um, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, to more from them on uh, on future releases. Mm, yeah, I can only echo that. Really, it's a superb parody, um, shall we say? Well, parody, yes, I suppose it is a slight parody, yeah, um, of fandom almost. Yes, really. indeed, yeah, um, <laughs> because it does focus on the minutia, and of course, I have a particular aversion to production codes after getting them so wrong on the recent quiz. Uh, but it is an absolutely fantastic. Um, sketch and I would suggest that if you haven't found it yet then go hunting because it's well worth a look yeah yeah Luke it's been great to talk to you once again uh thank you for coming on I'm sure we'll speak again in the future yeah it's always a pleasure and I look forward to uh, more collaboration definitely That was their review of the DVD of The Dominators. Mm. We'll be back next week to talk about what we think, Tom and I think, Mm. of The Dominators, because I'm sure we'll have very, very different opinions of this particular story. Mm. And we will be finishing off our look at the Troughton era all the way through the 60s, the 70s, all the way up to his last appearance in the 80s of uh, classic Doctor Who. So I hope you can join us next week for the conclusion of our look at Patrick Troughton, the man... The second Doctor, please join us. Perfect. Take care. See you soon. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.